Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So I'm going to pick up where I left off in John chapter 20. It says, Then the same day, in verse 19, by the way, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose for the Gospel of John, by the way, is that a person understands that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that they would put their faith in him, and have eternal life in His name. It's essential for a person to know and believe those things. It's essential for you and I to know and believe those things today. First of all, that Jesus is the Christ. When it says Jesus is the Christ, you know, Jesus Christ, Christ isn't His last name. That's His title. And it means anointed one. It means Messiah, the promised Messiah. In the Old Testament Scriptures, they foreshadow the coming of the Messiah, right? They show all kinds of pictures, there's symbols, there's types of uh, the Messiah pointed to in the Old Testament, and of course they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, I, I enjoy, thoroughly enjoy going through the Old Testament scriptures because I love looking for those symbols, those pictures that, that just point to Jesus well, Jesus did fill, fulfill the spiritual, or the, excuse me, the scriptural requirements for being Jesus the Christ, or being the Christ, I should say. Um, first of all, his lineage fulfilled the scriptural requirements for the Messiah. Because if you go through the Old Testament, scriptures teach that the Messiah would descend from the lineage of David. And Jesus' legal right to the throne of David was passed down through his adopted father, Joseph. Because Joseph descended from King Jeconiah, one of the last kings of Judah. But since Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, 
His biological right to the throne of David was passed down through his mother, Mary. And Mary descended from Nathan, which was one of, uh, one of David's sons. So lineage-wise, Jesus fulfills the scriptures as far as being the Christ. The place of his birth fulfilled the scriptural requirements of the Messiah because the scriptures teach that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And you guys know the story. We talk about it at Christmas time, right? Joseph and Mary, they, they, the census is taken or required, and so then they travel to Bethlehem. They're from up in Galilee, Nazareth. They travel down to Bethlehem, and there Jesus is born in Bethlehem, as it says that the Christ would be. You know, it's interesting when you think about that. You know, God didn't give Joseph a vision to go to Bethlehem. God did give vision, Joseph a vision to marry Mary. Mary, Mary, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, but God didn't give Joseph a vision to go to Bethlehem so that the Son of God, the Messiah, would be born there. You know what God used? God used a pagan government via a census. I mean, one day this guy, Augustus Caesar, who thinks he's the ruler of the world, and he was basically the ruler of the known world at the time, wakes up one morning and goes, oh, I think you know, I think it's time to, I want to count how many people there are in my kingdom. And so he, he decrees this census that everybody, they have to go back to their birthplace place to register. And so here, Joseph and Mary, they go back to Bethlehem from Nazareth. It was no doubt a hardship for them to do that, if you think about it. I mean, after all, they were poor. We know that because in Luke chapter 2, 24, when they bring offerings to the temple, if you were wealthy enough, you could bring a lamb. But if you weren't wealthy enough, the Scripture teaches, the Old Testament Scripture says, well, then you can bring two turtle doves. And as a matter of fact, Luke 2 records that Joseph and Mary brought two turtle doves. So they weren't very wealthy. They were poor. So traveling would have been a hardship in that sense. And most of you women would totally understand this. She was almost full-term pregnant. And here now she's traveling, not in a car, but on a horse or a donkey or however they traveled, you know, maybe totally by foot, traveling down to Bethlehem, almost being full-term pregnant. That would be a hardship. Not only that, but when they get there, there's no lodging available. I mean, you think about it, it's like, you know, God took, the, God had this plan that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and he used a hardship to bring Joseph and Mary to a place where his preordained divine will would be accomplished. Now, you know, when I read that, when I think about that, I get encouraged because there's a lot of times that, you know, I, things happen in my life. I'm like, Lord, why is this happening? I don't understand it. And what sometimes we, we need to understand and trust is that God's working something We may not see it right away, but he's got a plan and a purpose in those things that occur. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem to fill the scriptural requirements. The timing of his birth fulfilled the scriptural requirements of the Messiah. You know, it was prophesied when Jesus would be born. In Genesis 49.10, there's a messianic prophecy given to Judah Um, And it says that the scepter, which means the ruling power, uh, would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh is another name for the Messiah. According to the Talmud, in 7 AD, the Romans removed the power of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of elders. They removed the power of the Sanhedrin to pronounce the death penalty in Israel. And the Jews, they looked at that as their power had been taken from them. The power to proclaim a death penalty 
And so at that point, they tore their clothes. It's like God's word had failed. Here, the scepter had passed from Judah, and Shiloh had not come. That was in 7 AD. Little did they know that Shiloh had in fact came, and he was a young man growing up in Nazareth. In Daniel, Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 26, speaks about the 70 weeks regarding the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And each week there is understood to be a week of years, a seven-year period. And so there's 69 seven-year periods um, from the command to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the coming of the prince. And the command to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, we have that date. It was given by Artaxerxes in 446 B.C. And uh, scholars have made calculations based on a 360, because didn't, they didn't have 365-day calendars and back then. They had 360-day calendars. And there's some other factors. There's leap years and there's other reasons, other things that they factor in. But they did calculations that point to the fact that this prophecy points right to about the time when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. The timing of his birth had been foretold. His birth, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection all fulfill the scriptural requirements of the Messiah. Right? The Bible says the Messiah would be born of a virgin. That's in Isaiah 7.14. The Messiah would be crucified. Uh, Psalm 22 talks very in-depth about that. His death and burial, um, literally you know, being, buried, being crucified between two thieves and being buried in a rich man's grave, that's all in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus fulfilled those things. His resurrection fulfilled the prophecies regarding the Messiah. Psalm 69, or excuse me, Psalm 16.10 is one of those passages. And there's many others. In fact, Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. And there's hundreds of them. I just—I mean, just scratching the surface right now. So it's essential to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. Not only that, it's essential to know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That He is God incarnate, fully God and fully man. And His unique birth proves his deity. Isaiah 9.6 prophesies his virgin birth. The gospel record confirms it. And if you think about it, his virgin birth was necessary because it, it had to be in order for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. And um, it was necessary to enable Jesus to live a sinless life. You know, you think about it, all the greatest men whoever lived, all the greatest women who ever lived, all those who, you know, people look to, they've even, you know, the religion started after them. Um, There's one thing that none of them could overcome, and that was the fact that they were sinners because they were human. We're all sinners. Jesus is the only human to have ever lived a sinless life because he was fully God and fully man, and his sinless life proves his deity. You think about it, you know, um, uh, if you spend time with a certain person, now, you know, we come to church here and we can be kind of, you can put on your best face, you're smiling, you know. You know, you, you could be having a, a kick, kick down, knock out, drag out fight in the parking lot with your spouse or something and come in here and have a smile, you know. And how are things going? Oh, pretty good, you know. And, and you can, you can kind of maintain that for a while. But if you're living with someone 24-7, 
like most of you live with your families, 24-7. And if you did that for three years, you would know whether or not a person was a sinner. I mean, you'd know, right? Um, The disciples lived with Jesus 24-7 for three years, and they attested to his sinless life. And Peter's uh, letter, 1 Peter 2.22, he says of Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. John, in his letter, 1 John 3.5 says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. His disciples saw that he was sinless. Do you know that even his enemies proclaimed him sinless? You think about it. Judas, when he went and back to the, to the temple to give back the money, he basically said, I betrayed innocent blood. Pilate, after he had, after he had interviewed and, and examined Jesus, he came in and says, man, I find no fault in this man. So even his enemies could not find any sins in Jesus. In fact, and this is probably the most telling, his own family I mean, if anyone could point out a person's sins, it would be your family, right? You know, uh, you know. I remember. <laughs> I'll use myself as an example. Uh, you know, I had uh, gave my life to the Lord. Grew up in a Christian home. Gave my life to the Lord as a youngster. You know, relatively youngster, and uh, and then rebelled and went through a long period of rebellion and uh, joined the military and moved away and came back on leave. And, you know, it was, it was, so my parents had this picture of this rebellious guy here who's now in the military, um, but still rebellious in his heart. And during that time, I gave my heart back to the Lord. And then I met Teresa and uh, we, uh, you know, we, we, at first we were just friends and then it kind of, the relationship grew and we, we ended up being a, you know, fall in love with each other. And, and I remember um, my family, my parents particularly, they had a hard time believing that I had changed because they're like, we remember what you were like. And they had all these little stories that they could tell Teresa. Well, I remember when he did this, you know, and stuff. And, and you know, family can always point back to past stuff, right? Well, James, the writer of the letter of James, the book of James, was a half-brother of the Lord through Joseph, and at first, he was not believing. In fact, none of his family, none of his brothers anyways, um, believed that he was the Messiah until they encountered Jesus in his resurrected body, until they encountered the risen Savior. And then from that point on, James, we know for sure, we don't know about all his other brothers, but James would for the rest of his life become a follower of Christ. In fact, he'd be martyred for his faith. And in James' letter, James 2.10, he says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. You just have to stumble in one point in the law and you're a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter which one. And for James to write that and yet to worship Jesus as God, James, his brother who grew up with him, knew that Jesus committed no sin. In fact, Jesus himself stated that he was not a sinner. Now, there's a lot of people that probably would say that, right? You, you, you talk to someone on the street, hey, man, I've never sinned. Well, you can just, they're lying right there. They've sinned, you know, so. But Jesus, in John eight twenty nine, he says, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Have you ever said that? I always do what God wants me to do. <laughs> I mean, lightning would strike if I said that, so I don't, but... In John 8, 46, he also said, Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? 
And nobody came forward to convict him of sin because Jesus lived the sinless life. His unique teachings prove his deity. You know, you think about it. Jesus was a carpenter's son. Joseph was a carpenter. He was not widely traveled. I mean, he just basically lived in, in Palestine at the time there in, in Judea and went from, you know, Samaria, or excuse me, from Galilee, you know, traveled around. He wasn't a widely traveled person. He did not have a higher education according to the institutions of their day. And yet, when Jesus taught, man, he spoke with authority. People recommend, he, he, I mean, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, these, these educated professional guys, they, they sound that way. But man, Jesus doesn't talk like them. He speaks with authority. And he silenced his critics every time. And he always, whatever he said, always fit the situation. In fact, it even went deeper and it usually touched the issues of the heart that were at stake beyond the surface. And think about this. Now, this is something I, uh, he never once had to retract a thing that he said. Not once. He never once had to say, well, 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 let me clarify what I said earlier. I think you might have misunderstood. Let me clarify it. I've done that lots of times. I've re- had to retract things lots of times. Jesus never retracted anything that he said or clarified anything that he said. In fact, his teachings even apply to life today as you and I know it. In fact, if you were to talk to people who uh, they, don't rege- they, don't, they reject that Jesus is the Messiah, they don't believe that he's the Son of God, and yet you talk to them and say, well, what do you think about Jesus? You know what they'll usually say? Well, he was a good teacher. He was a great guy. He was a prophet. You know? So even his enemies, even those that don't believe in him, have to admit or do admit that he was a great teacher. The miracles that he performed proved his deity, right? Turning water into wine, giving sight to those born blind, raising the dead, I mean, feeding the 5,000 with just a few fish and loaves, calming the storm with the word of his mouth, the word of his voice. Jesus said in John ten thirty seven, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, and that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So even, even uh, the things that Jesus did, the miracles that he did, proved his deity. In fact, even Jesus' death proved his deity. In all of the Gospels, I'll read them to you. Matthew 27, verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Luke twenty three forty six. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. John 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Mark 15, 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then look, get this, in, in verse 39 of Mark 15. So when the centurion, that was the Roman soldier there, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, Man, he said, truly, that was the Son of God. You see, no human alive can will their last breath. You can't all of a sudden go, you know what, okay, that's it. I mean, I know that there have been people that have given up hope, and then they've, they've died relatively soon after they've given up hope. Or people have taken their lives, tried to commit suicide. Um, but you, now that's an involuntary thing. You can't just, I'm going to stop breathing. Well, you can try for a while, and then, you know, you've you got to catch your breath again. 
And yet Jesus willingly, voluntarily, of his own volition, gave up his spirit. Only God could do that. No human alive has ever been able to do that. In fact, Jesus said in John ten seventeen, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from the Father. So even his death proves his deity. His resurrection, of course, proves... He is the Son of God. You know, there's no great leader of any of the religions, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. I mean, you could name them all. None of them are alive today. They are all dead. Jesus is the only one who rose again from the dead because death couldn't hold him because Jesus is God. Jesus himself declares this in the book of Revelation, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead And behold, I am alive evermore, or forevermore. The literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, you know, that became the cornerstone of the disciples' message. I mean, that that became it. That was their testimony. Jesus rose again from the dead. In fact, it's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. I mean, you could read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all that Paul wrote about about the resurrection of the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins. And we of all people are to be pitied because we're worshiping this God that didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't rise from the dead. But the good news is Jesus did rise from the dead. Alfred Edersheim says this. He says it so well. I think. A dead Christ might have been a teacher and a wonder worker and remembered and loved as such, but only a risen and living Christ could be the Savior, the life and the life giver, and as such, preach to all men. Christianity, and you guys know this, it's not a religion. It's not a belief system. It's a relationship with the living Savior. And so at the end of John 20, verse 31, John says in that believing, you may have life in his name. You know, in Romans 4.25, Paul states that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses. And what that means is that Jesus, who knew no sin, was a sinless. He died a sinner's death on a cross in your place and in my place. He was delivered because of our offenses. And then Paul writes, and he was raised because of our justification. And right on the third day, he rose from the dead. And the Bible says, for our justification. What does that mean? Well, first of all, What does it mean about his resurrection? It means that it was completed. You see, Jesus completed the work of the sacrifice that he he offered of himself when he rose from the dead. If Jesus had remained in the grave, his sacrifice would have been incomplete and imperfect. But he completed it. The completion of his sacrifice means that sin and death have finally been conquered. Not only that, but it means acceptance. And Luke even alluded to it there in his prayer at the end of the worship service. His resurrection is proof that his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. That's of vital importance for you and I. Because it means that the Father accepts Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. 
It means that those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, man, we've been justified and we've been accepted by God the Father. And so his resurrection, I mean, it's, it's critical. The word justification, it's the technical definition is it's the act of God declaring men free from guilt and acceptable to him. I like to think of it this way. It's just as if I didn't do it. Justified. Just as if I didn't do it. And that's the way God views us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So not only are we justified by Christ's resurrection, but because Jesus rose from the dead, we have hope of eternal life. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Man, we have that living hope of the resurrection of the dead because Jesus rose from the dead, and he's the first fruits. He's the forerunner. This living hope, you know, for you and I, this living hope is what carries you and I through the pain and the grief of losing a loved one to death. You, you, you lose a loved one, and because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only do we have hope of eternal life, but we have that sure hope that one day we'll be reunited with our loved ones who had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who are saved and, and they die, we're going to see them again. We have that hope. So we, don't, we, don't, we, we grieve and we mourn when, when we lose our loved ones, but not like the world does because we have that living hope in Jesus Christ because of the resurrection of the dead. You know, there's another aspect to that too. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you recall during his crucifixion, at one point, Jesus, John, the apostle, was standing there, and, uh, and uh, Mary, his mother, was standing there. And Jesus looked to John, and basically, he told John, take care of Mary, take care of my mother. You, you remember the thing, he says, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And what he was inferring, and, and John and Mary both knew exactly what he was inferring, what he was inferring, what he was alluding to the fact was that at some point, Mary was a widow. And she didn't have a husband to, to care for her any longer. So Jesus knowing this, Jesus being the eldest son, Jesus dying that day, basically told John, hey, take care of my mother because she doesn't have anyone else to take care of her. That means at some point in Jesus' life, Jesus experienced the pain and the grief of losing Joseph 
because Joseph's no more in, in the scene in the, in, the, in the Gospels. His earthly father who adopted him and raised him. Joseph was a kind man. He was a, he was a, loving, he was a loving man. I mean, he, he took Mary, who was, you know, there was, there was disgrace, there was scandal about her pregnancy, and he, he didn't care. And he took her and made her his wife. And we know from the scriptures that there were times where people mocked him, and people people said, "Well, at least we know who our we, at least we know who our father is." They were inferring that he was a you know an illegitimate child, and yet Joseph was willing to take that and love Jesus and raise Jesus as a, as best he could as an earthly father, and so there was a bond there. There had to have been a bond there between father and son. And so Jesus, at some point in his life, he lost his earthly father. So he knows the pain and the suffering that we all lose. We all feel when we lose a loved one. He knows that. He's experienced that. And so for you and I, that means, just like it says, man, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in time of need. Mercy and grace, excuse me. Not only do we have a living hope of eternal life, but Jesus rose from the dead so that you and I can have a transformed life today. You know, you think about it. Up until the disciples saw Jesus, up until the time that they felt him, that they touched him, they didn't even understand what he was saying when he says, you know, the Son of Man is going to be crucified and he's going to die and three days later he's going to rise from the dead. And they're like... Don't know what this guy's talking about. I mean, they, they, they just couldn't conceptualize what Jesus was saying. It just, it, they couldn't understand it. They couldn't fathom it. Not only that, when he died, they weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. In fact, those two on the road to Emmaus, they're like, you know, all our hope's gone. We had hoped that he was the Messiah that was going to bring deliverance, and he wasn't because he's dead. And so they didn't understand they didn't expect him to rise from the dead. And at first, they didn't even believe that he had risen from the dead. When the, when the women came back and said, hey, we've, Jesus is dead, or Jesus rose from the dead. They're like, yeah. Thomas, man, until I, until I touch those wounds, I won't believe. But once they encountered the risen Christ, man, their lives were transformed forever. They were never the same. They couldn't be silenced. In fact, they would rather go to their deaths than deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in fact, many of those first century believers in Jesus, they did suffer martyrdom. They did die. Some of them very horrible deaths rather than deny that Jesus rose from the dead because you can't deny the truth. You can't deny the truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ became the one and the only thing that mattered to them in life, and it became the message. And, of course, that's the message that we're saying today, that Jesus rose from the dead. And for you and I, man, once you and I encounter the living Christ, once you and I put our trust in him, man, our lives are never going to be the same. They're never going to be the same. There's no going back. I love what the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And so going back to that passage in John chapter 20, you know, there's, there's Thomas. He, he's not believing it. Uh, but then he sees and he touches. Jesus says, hey, you know, the th- cool thing about that, Jesus never rebuked Thomas. He didn't say, Thomas, you dummy. You know, or, 
man, get out of here. You didn't believe that I said that? He didn't say that. What did he say? He said, hey, you need that further proof? Come and touch. Touch, touch my handprints. He didn't rebuke Thomas. Now, Thomas would have been more blessed if he had just believed in the first place, but he wasn't rebuked for it. And I think that's a key thing. Because for us, so often, you know, Jesus wants us to seek him out. He wants to reveal himself to us. He wants, to, he wants you to search for him. He wants you to hunger for him and thirst after him, and he'll reward you. The Bible says he rewards those who diligently seek him. And so taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And you know, when Jesus, when John recorded that, that gospel chapter there, you know, he was speaking about you and I here today. Because he says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's each one of you here today who believes that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. We've not seen him. I've not physically seen him. But I believe him. I believe what the scriptures teach. And if you do that, you're blessed. And, you know, I was thinking about this. I, you know, I'm, well, I won't say how old I am, but you know, I've, I've had quite a few Easter's now. Some of us have had more than others. But, um, you know, it's like every year. I was thinking I was driving here. I'm like, you know, it's like it's the same thing. You know, you go to church, you, you know, and then you get together with family, you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's kind of a regular thing that happens each and every year. And, you know, you wonder how many more Easter's are we going to be celebrating? And I'll be honest with you, I don't think there's going to be too many more Easter's that we're going to be celebrating. You know, we believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead because the scriptures teach us. And we put our faith in Christ Jesus. We have that relational um, relationship with him where, you know, he's real to us. He speaks to us in our hearts and he guides us and he's, he leads us. But I'm telling you, folks, one of these days, our faith is going to be changed to sight. You know, that's the one thing you're not going to need in heaven is faith. You won't need it in heaven because you'll be seeing him face to face. You'll be seeing the lamb who was slain for your sins. And uh, so I think it's, it's coming pretty soon, coming to a galaxy near you. <laughs> so, um, so Jesus rose from the dead. Hallelujah.